In John 7, Jesus continues his uh, debates, really, with, with the Jews. And uh, I'd like to just share a few, few comments from a few verses here. We'll start in verse 17. If any man will do God's will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it, or the teaching, whether it be of God, or whether I speak of myself. And this really uh, speaks, I think, to all of us, that sometimes it can seem that we're surrounded by such a, or we're faced with such a, a mass of possible interpretations, and we think, well, however, is anyone supposed to figure out truth when there's so many different possibilities? And Jesus is saying, as I understand him, that if you do, in your way of life, you are doing God's will, then you are going to somehow, in the process of that, you will have a sense for what teaching is true and what teaching is not. Now, of course, you could say, well, no, you just read the Bible and then you'll figure it out. But with the best will in the world, by simply a, an unaided human being faced with a Bible and faced with a mass of possible interpretations of the Bible, which appear on the surface to all have integrity, it, it would sort of be a test of intellectual ability, almost, or expositional ability, as to whether you come to, to truth. Jesus says, if we do God's will, then you will know of the teaching then you will instinctively, intuitively, I think, figure out where truth is. Now, you remember in another of his parables, he, he says that there were two sons, and the father says, it's sort of God, go and work today in my vineyard, and one of them says, no, I will not, and then he repents and goes, and the other says, yes, sir, I go, and he doesn't. And then Jesus finishes off by saying, and so which of them does the will of his father? Well, the will of the Father is therefore to work practically for him in his vineyard, that is, tending others and helping them to bring forth fruit. And I think that during the process of our service of God practically, we get into a relationship with him, and over time there become fewer of these issues where we think whatever is God's will, whatever is uh, whichever is the right interpretation of this passage or is this the right way to look at it or the wrong way, I think that the sign of spiritual maturity is that you get, as you become closer to God and you walk with him and his spirit becomes more aligned with your spirit you get this intuitive sense and that may sound uh, rather a weak thing to say, but I think that in practice that is the case. It's rather like with prayer. I think when one is first baptized, you have quite a few negative experiences of unanswered prayer. But Jesus says that if my words abide in you, and you abide in me, you, you shall ask what you want, and it shall be done to you. And yet, in John's letters, he also says, if we ask according to God's will, we shall receive. But... As his word abides in us, and his will becomes our will, I think that we get into an upward spiral of relationship whereby we sense the things to pray for. And silly prayers like, you know, may I open my eyes and next thing um, may I see in front of me, whatever, a check or banknotes or whatever, you, you don't start to pray for those things. And so I think it is generally with understanding truth, 
in its true sense, in, in its biblical sense of truth. Uh, but that becomes easier as the process goes on. And yet, later on in this chapter, we encounter the Jewish people who seem genuinely unable to decide about Jesus. You see in verse 27, we know this man whence he is, as they had said earlier, we know his father and mother, as they supposed, and we know that he was the carpenter's son, and we know the village that he's from, etc. But when Christ comes, no man knows from whence he is, and they're quoting from some rabbinic idea that Messiah will be unexpected. And there was a rabbinic saying that there are two things unexpected. One is, one is the coming of Messiah, the other is a scorpion. And yet there were other Jews, as uh, we read later on in the chapter, who said, no, verse 41, how shall Christ come out of Galilee, out of Nazareth? Isn't it written in the scriptures that Christ comes of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? They who said that were obviously ignorant of the fact that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. And they were obviously ignorant of what we see in the genealogies of Jesus, that Joseph and Mary were both directly, in that sense, in the line of David. So these people are, are unable to really decide for Jesus because they've got all these preconceived ideas. Now I'd like to focus for a moment on the people in verse 27 who says, no, no, you're never going to know where Christ is from. He's just going to appear. There's going to be a mystery element to him. And I think that this is really the root of why some people stumble over the correct interpretation and understanding of Jesus because they have the idea that it must all be a mystery. There must be a greater mystery to Jesus than there actually was and is. And this links in with the question as to why they were so madly incensed against him and wanted to kill him. Verse 30, they sought to take him when he says that uh, I'm from God, we want to kill you. Now, there were all kinds of people, as there are all kinds of nutcases today, who say, I'm the son of God, I'm, I'm from God, I came down from another planet. I think, uh, at best, our response to them is that of pity. I don't see there is anger. When we deal with people who are crazy, as they must have had plenty in the first century, who made odd claims about where they were from, they, well, would have just ignored them or thought, well, put them in the funny farm. Why the emotion of anger and we want to kill you because you said that? Why not just say, you're crazy, mate, you know, and, and just, uh, you know, play on? Well, I think that it's because Jesus was perfect, and I think they must have had some perception of that. And he really was the Son of God, and yet he was so human. Because he obviously had human nature, and yet was perfect, people didn't like that. And why did they not like it? Because it was an unspoken challenge to them, that because of Jesus, because of his perfection, while still having human nature, while still needing to scratch and itch and sneezing and getting a cold and uh, losing the way or forgetting something or uh, hitting his finger accidentally when he was uh, making something in his working life and yet still be perfect. This made people very uneasy as I think it does today. 
And why? Because the fact that he had our nature but did not sin and had this evidently very close relationship with God in heaven, that is a challenge to us. And we would rather not be challenged that way. We would rather say, well, uh, you know, actually, he was God himself. That, that's the reason why he was so good, if you like. Uh, and yes, he is my saviour, but um, he's a saviour rather than an example. Well, he is a continual demand upon us. The very fact that he had human nature and yet was perfect. And so all the, the false ideas there are about human nature, about the origin of Jesus, his supposed pre-existence as a person, the Trinity and the rest of it, all these ideas are wrong. And yet why are they so hugely attractive? And why is there the anger with Jesus for being so human and yet saying that he was from God? Why, you could say, is there this huge anger in so much of what passes as Christianity today with those of us who deny the Trinity? Why the persecution of non-Trinitarians throughout history? The only thing that, our, that is unusual in our generation is that we are not literally burnt at the stake or ostracized simply for being non-Trinitarian. Why is there that anger? I think it's because it's a, a reaction mechanism against a guilty conscience that, wow, he was human, but he was perfect. In the same way, as just imagine that you were to have somebody in your circle of acquaintance of your church, maybe, or whatever, the ecclesia, someone who was unusually spiritual. <clears throat> and as far as anyone of us could see, this person never put a foot wrong, thought spiritually all the time, was so amazingly close to God. We would, I think, I mean, I hope that we would uh, just uh, respect them and be challenged by them to try to be more like them. But I suspect there would arise amongst some an anger with that person, a desire to pull them down, a desire to find something wrong with them. And if they couldn't do that, even a, a desire to destroy them, to throw them out of the church. And in a very much smaller way, you see that with some of the most spiritually minded people that I have known. I'm not saying that they were perfect. They were not perfect. But they were and are very spiritually minded people. But because that spiritual mindedness led them to uh, a willingness to fellowship with sinners, for example, uh, they were cast out of the church. And people were sort of breathed a little bit easier after that very spiritually minded person was thrown out. And all this is the psychological basis, I submit, for belief in the Trinity and the pre-existence of Jesus, uh, etc. And you see it here. No, no, no. There's got to be a mystery about Messiah. We don't know where he's from. Now, it's not everybody that has this problem, in the same way as it was only some of the Jews who had this problem here. The point is, the very human Jesus... The very humanity of Jesus is really a challenge, a huge challenge to all of us, that I can no longer blame my nature. I can no longer blame my background, my family or whatever, my history in life. No, every sin in that sense is avoidable. If it isn't avoidable, then you come to the position where, whereby uh, we are not really guilty for sin and uh, you, you can't have that. The whole message of the Gospel is to convict us 
of our sin and to stop making excuses. And so, <clears throat> whichever way you turn, we are faced with this insistent challenge that comes through to us in every department of human life, that he was human and yet he was like me. So Jesus warns these people, these, these Jews, but he's only with them for a very little time, verse 33, and they don't have that much longer to believe in him. And he says, 34, you shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come. Clearly alluding to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek and you shall find. But there comes a time, there will come a time for these people when you shall seek me and shall not find me. And I can only understand that really as him talking about their condemnation, that at the day of judgment nobody will be passive. Nobody will shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, well, I was never really switched on by this idea of the kingdom anyway. Um, well, okay, that's how it was. Well, I didn't have a bad life, didn't have a bad innings, and uh, okay, so it's not for me. Or, oh yeah, all that God stuff, that Jesus stuff, ah oh, no, that's not for me. Um, no, standing before the judgment seat of Jesus, as we all must, there will be one thing that will be critical, that will consume our whole, every fibre of our being. I want to be in the kingdom of God more than anything else. And you shall seek me, Jesus says to the condemned, and you will not find me. This is the foolish virgins knocking on the door. Please let us in. They don't say, ah, oh, he's come. Ah, oh, yeah, well, anyway, um, let's go on sleeping. Oh, no, no, let us in, let us in. And I think it's also the explanation of another difficult passage when Jesus says to the Jews about this same time, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And I, I've gone through every interpretation that I can find of those verses, and uh, none of them really satisfy me, apart from apart from my own one, um, which is this. Uh, sorry if it sounds arrogant, but you, you know what I mean. You, you, you look at a scripture and you, you try to look at all the commentaries on it, and nothing quite... quite uh, quite answers it for you, but then you do come to some understanding that does, that's, that's what I mean to say. Uh, and so, for me, that whole thing about, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, he's talking to a condemned generation, and I think he's saying that in the last day, you will say that. Now you are doing me to death, you are hating me, lying about me, crucifying me, but you know what, the day is going to come when you at the day of judgment see me again in glory and you're going to say, oh, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord and that I think is the explanation here as well in 34 you shall seek me and shall not find me and where I am, thither you cannot come and I think the I am, this is again an, an allusion to the um, to the Yahweh name but I think the sense really is where I will be where I am now is where I will be because Jesus was with the Father right as he spoke those words uh, and he's saying that where I am now there you will not be able to come you dislike my closeness to the Father it makes you angry so angry you want to kill me because you see the unconscious demand it makes of you and the challenge it sets you okay but actually to there to that relationship with the Father at the day of judgment you will also want to come but again Luke 16 which man and Lazarus there is a great gulf fixed and if you want you will want to cross over that gulf but 
it will not then be possible. But it is possible now. I'm with you a little while longer. And it's worth bearing in mind that I think there are more descriptions of the rejected at the Day of Judgment than there are of the faithful. You could say that's negative psychology, trying to scare us, as it were, into being serious about it all, but I, I, don't, I don't think that's the idea. I think it's simply a solemn reality, that this is the future that you may miss, and this is the position that is going to be, that so many are going to be in. Don't get to that point. Um, it, it's like Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, and he's talking about the terror of condemnation, we persuade men. So, in the last day, verse 37, that great day of the feast, and I think this is talking about tabernacles, because they then had this ceremony, uh, which is not directly biblical, but it was a, a ceremony of pouring water. And Jesus is saying, as they're pouring this water, If anyone thirst, let him come unto me and drink. <clears throat> and he that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given. <clears throat> this is difficult to understand, and again, I'll give it my, my best shot, which may or may not be right. Jesus is saying that those who believe in him, out of their belly, and the Greek word really means the innermost being, uh, it's used also of the heart and of the womb, out of them, out of your heart, will come forth rivers of living or springing water. Where does the scripture say this? Well, there's a couple of uh, things I'd like to present to you. One is from Ezekiel 47, verses 1 and 9, where we have this picture of the living water coming out of the new temple which is going to bring healing to everybody who drinks from it. The idea of living or springing water I think is also uh, the idea is taken from Leviticus 14 verse 5, Leviticus 15 13, Numbers 19 verse 16 where there was to be this, this spring water, this living water that was to be used to cleanse people from leprosy and from contact with death. <clears throat> and it's also, as I said, Numbers 19.16 in the, uh, the thing about the red heifer, it's used there for cleansing. In the AV, this phrase is, is used of running water that when the leper is to be cleansed or when he that has an issue coming out of him is to be cleansed he should wash his clothes bathe his flesh in running water the idea is living water and she'll be clean and perhaps the idea was that they had to use the water out of the rock in order to obey this at least in, in the wilderness so then that I think is as the scripture has said but, but this living water will come out of our hearts. Now, don't forget this is John recording this, and it's John who also records in John 19 how when the spear pierced the Lord's side, there sprung out of his heart, out of his belly, his innermost being, <clears throat> blood and water. And the implication is that the blood and water was separate. And so... 
I think he's saying that in the same way as I am to be crucified, so are you. I mean, all the language of take up my cross and all that and follow me is not in John's Gospel directly. But as so often with John, the ideas that are in the other Gospels are here. They're just expressed in more figurative sort of language. So I think he's saying that as I am to be crucified and there will spring water out of my side, out of my innermost being, out of my heart, so all those of you who truly believe in me will die with me and will rise with me. And out of the wounds of your crucifixion, there will come this water which can cleanse others. So if you thirst, come to me and drink. But out of you, there is going to come water for other people to drink as a result of your response to my crucifixion. And the water that comes out of us, verse 39, is the Holy Spirit. And the way he talks about the Holy Spirit was not yet given. That implies to me that there was something called the Holy Spirit that was specifically given after Christ was glorified. So I don't think we can take Holy Spirit here as just meaning in a general sense the power of God, because of course that was around and available and at work um, before Jesus was glorified. But the implication is that there would be a specific power for cleansing after the pattern of the living water that was used to cleanse the leper and cleanse those defiled. There was going to be a special power of God that would be made available after Christ was glorified, and it would operate through coming out of those who have believed in Christ. And yet, bearing in mind the allusion to the, the pierced side and the water coming out of the side uh, at the Lord's crucifixion, it is through the wounds and the result of our dying with Christ, our crucifixion with him, that we are able to provide to others that power and that strength which will cleanse. It's not that we are their saviour, but we become the mediator of God's power, God's spirit, God's water, in the same way as we drunk that of Jesus. So then there is a specific power to cleanse and to transform lives that God has made available after the glorification of Jesus. And we mediate that to others. You can see how that happens. In all the trauma that we all go through as a result of having signed up for co-crucifixion with Jesus, it is out of that that you are able to be a cleansing and strengthening and life-giving influence to others. You lose somebody, let's say. Let's say that's part of your cross. And the result of that, if you respond to it properly, is that you will be able, in your turn, to cleanse others, to mediate to others that cleansing from Jesus that you also partook in. And so <clears throat> this, again, has been sort of realized, I think, by a lot of self-help groups, therapy ideas, philosophies, 12 points, 12 steps, all the rest of it, where they're really saying that the real way to cleansing ultimately is to vow to share what you have experienced with others and that you know, that's the 12th of the uh, of the 12 steps to 
devote the rest of your life to helping others who have suffered from the addiction or the, the situation that you have overcome. So then, this is what gives ultimate purpose, I think, to our response to the, the process of co-crucifixion with the Lord, which we're all asked to go through. Now, as we come now to think more directly about the crucifixion, as we come closer to, to the cross and the Son of God hanging upon it, all represented, as so many things are represented in, in this bread and wine, this is a final thought from verse 15. Nicodemus said to them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them. You know, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He really understood the message. And he went back, but he didn't come out openly at that time. And here we're just reminded that he is one of them. And he tries to put in a little word for Jesus by just saying, Look, let's just consider what the guy's saying. And, you know, he's jumped on for saying even that. And later on, of course, we come to the terrible statement that all those of the, uh, the Sanhedrin uh, and the Pharisees, little comment, they all condemned him to death. That in the decision that was taken to crucify Jesus, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did not speak up to their shame. They did not speak up to their shame, but to our shame, because we are so similar we perceive very clearly the real teaching of Jesus and yet we cannot so often seem to come out with it and I'm not talking about preaching as it were, I'm talking about way of life we, we don't seem to be able to stand up in front of society always as we should and come out openly for the Lord yet Nicodemus did in the end and how did he do it? he simply beheld the cross of Jesus and him and Joseph of Arimathea come out straight in front of everybody and uh, they bury the body they beg for the body they bury the body they take it down etc they fly their colours even though I'm not sure they understood at the time the resurrection and the idea of reward that wasn't on their agenda they were motivated by the cross of Jesus to say because of him and who he was I now will come out for him come what may with no reward for me because as I say I don't think they had the idea of recompense in their mind I don't think they clearly understood the resurrection of the Lord either at that time but because of him there I will no longer be secret I will come out openly and I am unashamed because of him there, because of how he was. And that, I think, is one of the emotions that we should have from a prolonged meditation upon him there. But now, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what people think of me, or might think of me, or could think of me, or the possible consequence of standing up for him. Because of him there, I, in my own way, socially or in whatever way, will die for him.